Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. A few years ago, it's probably been a couple years ago, uh, Liam, my uh, youngest, he's he was seven, eight at the time, and he was having trouble sleeping at night. You know, sometimes that happens. They're worried about the monsters in the closet and under the bed and around the corner and in their light fixtures and, you know, whatever, just, you know, just all over the place. Um, and so we were just trying to figure out solutions for how to help him get to sleep. So he decided, hey, well, what if I listen to the Bible while I'm falling asleep? And I thought, that's a wonderful idea. I do know that reading the Bible for some of you puts you to sleep, so I figured it might, might work for him. And so he figured out how to get his Amazon Echo to play the Bible, and he would listen as he fell asleep. So one of the first nights he was doing this, I don't, I don't know how we figured out exactly how to do that. I'm not sure that uh, Jeff Bezos uh, wants that to happen, but he figured it out. And uh, I am going up to bed. This is a couple hours after he's gone to bed, fallen asleep. I go, I go to check on him. You know, I open up his door, and I hear... Uh, in his room, Leviticus 14.43, this is the verse. If the defiling mold reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mold has spread in the house, it is a persistent defiling mold. The house is unclean. Sweet dreams, buddy. It actually only gets worse from there. It's kind of like good luck with whatever nightmare you're going to have now. Now, when I, when I read that, I, and I do read that, um, we'll talk about this in a, in, in a second. Well, let me, let me back up. Let's start over. We are in a series called Torah Together, and the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we've made it as a church. We've read together, and we've stayed current every day. I am completely sure from Genesis through Exodus, we got through the laws of Exodus, and some of you are like, wow, I'm really grateful that we have made it through some of those difficult laws. They're a little tedious. I can finally relax as we get into Leviticus. And then you were hit with seven chapters of exactly how to offer a sacrifice. And it was, it was pretty bloody. It was kind of horror movie bloody. It was like, put your hand on top of the ram, slit its throat, sprinkle the butt on the side of the altar, make sure that it's not defiled. And you're reading that and you're just like, oh boy, I, this, is, this is intense stuff. We're right in the thick of it. Uh, now, in the story, remember, you have Genesis all the way through. They, they're in Egypt and then the people of, uh, of the Hebrew people are rescued out of Egypt and they go to the mountain. They're given the law. They're still on the mountain. That's where we are. And then at the end of Exodus, we were given these really detailed instructions for this tabernacle. It was a portable temple and we were given instructions. We read through that and you're like, okay, 150 cubits here, 50 cubits there. What is all this? We talked about what it was like to welcome the presence of God into the midst of the people. Um, but most people don't have a special place in their heart for Leviticus. I'm going to guess that if you're one of those underliners in your Bible, you have very little of Leviticus underlined. I'm going to guess if you're one of those people that likes to use a little Bible verse on a caption on your Instagram posts, it's rarely Leviticus. It just doesn't happen very often. Unfortunately, Leviticus kind of gets treated like a punchline. Um, I hear criticism of the, the Bible 
it's usually a verse from Leviticus that people are like, this is, this is ridiculous. I can't believe that this is in the Bible. You really believe this is a divinely inspired book? Uh, I hear a conversation or have a conversation with a skeptical friend who's like, I'm not sure I agree or believe in all this stuff. And then they'll point to a verse in Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus is kind of this verse that's utilized to say, see, this isn't relevant. This is important. This isn't something for us. Uh, if you want to hear complaints about God's character, they'll point to something in Leviticus. And they'll say that, what? why would God teach that? Why would God do that? Uh, this, I, I was driving through Minneapolis down uh, Lake Street in Minneapolis and saw this tattoo parlor, Leviticus Tattoo and Piercing. Do you know why it's called that? Because people, religious folks, who want to be against the idea of tattoos have used a verse in Leviticus, I would argue misused a verse in Leviticus, to say you can't get tattoos. And so this ta tattoo parlor was like, well, we're going to call ourselves Leviticus Tattoos. And it's, it's so easy. If you want to go to the book of Leviticus, grab a verse out of context and use it for whatever purposes, you can do that. And it's become real, this point of contention in, in sort of religious culture wars because there's so much that's strange. It, it is kind of a punchline. And on top of that, it's, it's a little awkward, honestly. I don't know how far many of you have gotten. And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not even going to get very far now after this sermon. But hang on. I'm going to tell you why it's actually good. But at the beginning, it, well, not at the beginning. It talks about the sacrifices. But as you get into it, it starts talking about things like festering wounds. It uses that phrase, festering wounds. It talks a lot about mildew, as we read. Liam learned about that in his sleep. It talks about, a lot about incest. A lot of, and there's a lot of blood. And it's confusing and awkward, and honestly, it can feel a little hard to defend if people are saying, oh, this is your Bible, this is what's in your Bible. It's kind of like uh, Leviticus can feel a little bit like that weird friend that you get, but nobody else does, and you feel like you're constantly having to defend them. Now, I understand all that criticism, but I do think it misses the point. Because I think it's fair for me to say that so far in this process, I was less familiar with Leviticus, but it became one of my favorites. It became one of the most interesting books because there's something happening in Leviticus that if we're unwilling to dig a little bit and get below the surface of the festering wounds and the blood and the sacrifices, we're going to totally miss what's going on behind the scenes, something incredibly important. And so we're going to do something odd this morning. I'm, I'm going to give you four tools for learning to love Leviticus, and we are going to cruise through the first three and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on that fourth one. Um, the rest of our time is going to be focused on this one that I think is probably the most important. About five minutes in the first three, most on the last. Number one, number one tool for learning to love Leviticus is this. Sit with the strangeness. If you're taking notes as you read through Leviticus and you're like, what in the world is that? Don't just rush past it. Sit there and ask yourself, why is that weird? Why is that uncomfortable to me? Why is that confusing? What is going on? Because if we believe that scripture is given to us to reveal God, then sometimes we're going to be confused because God is an infinite being that is difficult to understand. And so if we're spending time and we're like, I don't understand what that is about, then we should just sit there rather than to make assumptions about what we believe or what we think and how Leviticus or the Bible in this, in this situation is wrong. If scripture is reshaping us and challenging us and changing us, there's times we're going to feel uncomfortable with it. There's times we should feel uncomfortable with it. Discomfort and confusion are part of growth. That's part of what it's all about. So ask yourself, why do I find this stuff weird? There's an entire chapter about unlawful sexual practices and relationship. And I mean, this is, and it's strange. 
to read through that. But then ask yourself, what is God trying to condition and encourage in his people through these texts? Secondly, you've got to consider their culture. Now, I realize this is obvious, but you've got to consider their culture. Like we, we read Leviticus, and you're like, yeah, there is a lot of blood in Leviticus. Uh, well, part of it is because I, when I want to eat a hamburger, I go to Target and buy meat and grill a burger. I don't have to go out to the barnyard and find my least favorite cow and massacre it and then do whatever you got to do to a cow. I have no idea how it works. I don't know if you eat your least favorite cow. I don't know what any of the, how any of that works because I grew up in a society where I'm distant from all of that. When I was younger, my uncle had sort of a hobby farm and he had a bunch of chickens and he had us kids come out and watch him slaughter the chickens. And that's the word they use, slaughter. It's just like, it's kind of gruesome. Uh, have you ever seen a chicken get slaughtered with a, like a hatchet or an axe? It's pretty gross. It seems a lot like Leviticus. Cut the head off and the thing runs around and blood. And I, I don't know, I, I had to have been like six or seven years old. And I didn't eat chicken for a while because it's pretty wild. So you got to consider their culture. It's very different. God is doing something different with them, drawing them out into something new. And, and of course, he's going to leave all the basics. In fact, he talks about this. He says, these, these, these things that I'm telling you to do, you've got to avoid them because the nations around you do them. They engage in these behaviors, and that's not who you are going to be. We're going to be different. So he gets really basic. And then thirdly, the thing you thirdly got to do to begin to love Leviticus is acknowledge the abstract. Concepts like guilt and forgiveness and gratitude are sort of abstract. So it sounds weird to us when Leviticus says, hey, if you are guilty before God, go out to your barn, grab yourself a ram, bring it into the center of town, into the tabernacle, have a conversation with a priest, kill that thing, and I will forgive you. That sounds weird to us. We don't interact with God that way. But he's taking this abstract idea like guilt, and he's making it very concrete. And there are definite steps. There's a recipe to follow to help people understand what they do with their guilt and gratitude and joy and sense of peace, even when they want to, to acknowledge the goodness of God. Here's exactly what you do. And I can imagine that would be pretty helpful in some cases. So acknowledge the abstract. It's kind of like um, when a toddler gets hurt and they're, they're just, you know, devastated, you know, they're acting like you need to take them to the ER and there's no visible damage to the skin. And somehow a parent giving that knee a kiss solves the problem. They needed something concrete to deal with this thing that couldn't be seen otherwise. You just need a concrete acknowledgement of an abstraction. All right, those are the first three and we're gonna talk about the fourth one in a lot more detail. Everything in this book, every strange command, Every tedious sacrifice centers around a single central idea. Um, the concentration camp Auschwitz was the largest Nazi extermination center. Over a million people, mostly Jewish people, were killed in this place, lost their lives there. Today, it is a memorial and a museum to the Holocaust, particularly the events that occurred there. Not too long ago, the people that run the museum and the memorial had to remind people that Auschwitz isn't an appropriate place 
to set up your selfie camera with your lights and make TikTok videos. Can you imagine going into this place that is just, that, that is this, where these horrors, these horrific things happened and people are doing silly dance videos. Well, sometimes the children and grandchildren of people who went through this are there trying to acknowledge the depth of what happened. I mean, it's, it's wild. You, you totally look this up. They've had to put out like announcements like, please don't do this. This is, this is, a, this is an important place. Now, the problem with that is, is both obvious and hard to articulate. All right, is there a problem with making a TikTok dance video? <laughs> All right, if you're over 48, yes. But if you're younger than that, like I make TikTok videos all the time. You can look for my, no, I don't. I'm just kidding. No, there's some, whatever. Make a, make a dance video. Who cares, right? There's nothing morally or ethically wrong with doing something like that. Uh, should you do it at Auschwitz? No. But how do you define that delineation? How do you distinguish between those things? It's not illegal. But it's totally inappropriate. It's so inappropriate to be silly in a place so solemn. It's, it totally misses the point of what's, what's happened and what has happened. When you go to a place like that, you should experience a sense of heaviness, a weight, potentially a sorrow. I took uh, my daughter, we went on a trip to, to New York City several years ago, and we got to go to the 9-11 Museum. She wasn't even alive when that happened, the memorial at the base underneath um, <clears throat> the memorial where it is. And you just walk into that place, and, and voices get hushed. Nobody's walking through there snacking on food. It's just a somber place because the weight and the gravity of what has happened there sits heavy on people. And when people can walk into a place like that and be silly and goofy, it's totally wrong. You're like, you're not understanding something. You're missing the point. It's just weird. Now, Auschwitz or the Holocaust is so heavy that it, 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 it's beyond time. 80 years later, and you still shouldn't be silly in a place like that. In fact, you could go to the Holocaust Memorial in, in D.C., far from where these events happened, and you still are going to have that sense of weight and heaviness. It, it's, it, if you could imagine that, that weight, that heaviness, if you could imagine that as like an, a tangible thing, and you could see that, then it would help us understand what Leviticus is trying to get at. Um, even jokes, even jokes about the Holocaust today might elicit a shocked laugh, but they're going to get somebody in trouble. Somebody dressing up in like Nazi regalia is going to get them in trouble because of the weight of what happened there 80 years ago. This experience is so unique that people borrow religious language to try to describe it. They, they use words like, hey, this is a sacred place or this is hallowed ground, or you need, to, you need to have a sense of reverence here. That's religious language to try to describe something that's not particularly religious. It's weighty, it's heavy. In fact, to take the happy selfies and the poses and the happy smile TikTok video type stuff, people would say, well, that's profane or that's vulgar. You're desecrating some, a memory of something important. Now, when it comes to the Bible, there is a specific word that the Bible uses to describe this weight that exists around the identity of God. 
This is a hard thing for us to grasp. It's very foreign to our culture. There's a specific word that the Bible uses repeatedly to describe that sense of reverence and awe that should surround the gravity, the significance that should surround who God is. And it's just this one short word, the word holy. The word holy, it's a familiar word. We sing about it. We use it in our, you've read it in, in Leviticus this week. Now, Leviticus is all about this. This is really important because some of you have inherited some unhelpful ideas about that word, that, that if, if there's a way to clear out the, those ideas and, and then rebuild them to something more helpful, I think would be good. But Leviticus is all about this concept, this holiness, the way that we regard the importance of who God is and what he has done and how we interact with that. In the book of Exodus... God gave all those commands, and do you remember? He said, hey, you need to do this, X, Y, Z. You need to do this because I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. But in the book of Leviticus, he says, you need to do X, Y, Z because I am holy. I am holy, and I chose you to be holy. Leviticus 20, 26 says this, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. The expectations on you, Israel, are going to be different than everybody else because you have greater access to me. You get to come into my presence in this tabernacle that we just built together. You are holy. So I want you to, if you can, suspend whatever ideas you have that come prepackaged with that word, and we're going to try to come back at it in a way that I hope uh, is helpful. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist. He wrote a book uh, that I thought was amazing called The Righteous Mind. Now, Jonathan Haidt is an atheist, and I tell you that because some of what he's gonna, about to say sounds extremely religious, um, and I want you to know that he's coming at it from a purely scientific point of view. He's talking about data and stats and interviews. He's not trying to read the Bible and give you information. Um, he makes, this is a really good book, but he makes this, this convincing case that anytime you do something moral or, or immoral, there's really five reasons that you do it. There's really just five reasons, and the reasons are you, you do it out of fairness, harm, authority, loyalty, or sanctity. So it, it's pretty straightforward, like fairness. We, most of what we do probably comes down to this, but if there's a cake and it's divided into eight pieces and there's eight people, we know we shouldn't take two pieces because that would be unfair. Somebody would get left out. And that's a huge moral motivation for our society. But the rest of them are too. I don't want to do anything that hurts someone else or causes harm. Most of the time when you hear someone talk about morality, they say, well, knock yourself out. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, you do what you want. So harm is this big moral, uh, moral appeal. Uh, authority, if you're a rule follower, if the sign says do not walk on the grass and you see somebody walking on the grass, it gets you all like worked up. They're not supposed to do that, right? Sometimes when I, this is a little silly because I don't think of myself as a rule follower, but I don't know why this one in particular always gets me. When I see a car turning left and they don't turn into the closest lane, they turn left from one lane to two lanes and they turn into the far lane, I wish I had a little light on my car that I could pull them over and just give them a good talking to. I don't know why that bothers me. They're not following the rules. That's the rule. Are they causing any harm? No. Is it unfair? No. They're just breaking a rule. Loyalty, I do this because they're my family or they're my neighbor. I do this because I have some obligation to them, some sense of loyalty, loyalty to them. Most of our society operates from that fairness, harm um, paradigm. I'm not sure why we've settled on those two, but you can, non-religious people in particular, operate from the fairness and harm and, and kind of neglect the other ones. 
Uh, but the one we neglect as a society generally is that last one, sanctity. Even, even inside out had disgust as one of the emotions. But we've kind of we've moved away from that, like, like this, this issue of disgust. Now, it's not nearly forgotten. It's not totally forgotten, but it's just not part of our moral imagination. Um, we don't really navigate the world with a sense of, of sanctity. The, the dictionary definition of sanctity is holiness. Regarding a thing, um, a, an object, a person, a place as, as special or sacred. We just don't interact with the world in that way hardly at all. And it feels like it's becoming less and less and less as a society. Now, now our culture prioritizes harm over holiness as a moral imperative. I'm not sure why. I think that would be interesting to understand. But we do have a little of this besides TikToks at Auschwitz. We do have a little bit of this like, hey, you need to behave in an appropriate way. For example... You might, I don't know, you might kiss your spouse, right? But you probably do not share a toothbrush with your spouse, right? I mean, you're like, mm, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some of you do. I don't, whatever. You do you. But, but it's likely you don't. Now, you're willing to share germs, except when it comes to the toothbrush. And some of you are like, well, yeah, it gets right in there in the, the crevices of my teeth and I don't, I don't want somebody else using it and getting their back. But you're sharing bacteria other ways. But there's something, we wouldn't, it seems a little silly to use this word, but there's something special or sacred or holy about my toothbrush. It has been set apart for my use. It should not be used in any other form or any other fashion or any other person's mouth. It should, be not, it should not be used to clean anything. It should not be used in any other situation. I would never, now some of you would never in a million years eat a sandwich in the bathroom. You're just that there's germs in the air, there's gross things in the air. However, you will leave your toothbrush in your bathroom and then you will put that toothbrush in your mouth. Now some of you are like, this is a little gross, Patrick. Well, yeah, I'm illustrating that we do have, we do navigate the world with a little bit of sense of sanctity, a little bit of sense of holiness. Most of us wouldn't eat a grub, Bear Grylls style, right? I would not do it. If somebody said, hey, you could go a week without eating or you can have your fill of grubs, I'd be like, I am going a week. I'm not going to do it. It's why? It doesn't cause me harm. They say that there's a lot of nutritional value in those, right? Uh, it, I mean, Bear Grylls did it, and he's probably a millionaire, right? Some of you would. I know some of you will eat gross things. I get it. But most, some of us wouldn't. And we would just say, look, my mouth is a sacred place. I'm not going to put something that would defile it. If we were to use religious language, I'm not going to put something that would defile it in there. In fact, somebody might even say, well, listen, if you eat grubs, it means that there's more food for impoverished people. You will cause greater fairness and less harm in the world if you ate a diet of grubs. And some of you are like, too bad for them. Because <laughs> of sanctity, because of holiness. In fact, I think some of you parents have probably used biblical language in talking to your kids when you purchased a new car or a new couch. And you looked at them in the eye. And you said, thou shalt never drink red Kool-Aid within a hundred yards of this couch. Thou shalt not 
eat a Nature Valley granola bar anywhere near. You've used almost biblical language to try to say this item is special and sacred. I know it's not special and sacred in the same way that God is, but there's something different that we need to interact with this thing differently. Several years ago, Karina and I resigned ourselves just not to updating the furniture until the kids are gone from the home. We're just not going to do it. But truth is, and don't tell Kareen this, I'm probably the biggest problem with our furniture being gross. I mean, wiping my fingers on it and stuff like that. It's just gross. I know. What are you going to do? All those are secular examples of holiness. They're not religious. They're secular. But they're a way of regarding something with a special sanctity. Let's, let's say I come home from going on a run and it's not this weather, it's hot, and I'm all sweaty, and I'm nasty, and I'm gross, and I've got sweat stains, and I'm dripping sweat, and I'm, you know, say all that. And let's say I walk in the house, and Kareen's like, ooh, you're gross, and I say, I would like to give you a hug. And Kareen would say, no, thank you. Go take a shower, at least change your shirt. What would it say about me if I said, nah, I'm just going to give you a hug anyway? What would, ladies, what would you think about me as a spouse if I just forced that on her in that state? You'd be like, that's not, it's not good, Patrick. In fact, that's kind of psychopath behavior, right? <laughs> if I said, oh, Corrine, stop being so particular. There's nothing gross about my sweat. It's fine. Don't be so weird. You guys would be like, Patrick, you need to go to therapy because you're being crazy. You're being psycho. For some reason, when God comes along and says, hey, believers, these are my boundaries. If you want to access me, if you want to be near me, he says, here's, here's how you need to be holy. Here's the things that I require you to do to be holy and to be in my presence. And what we do to God is we say, God, that's weird. That's backward. That's repressive. I'm going to have a relationship with you on my terms. And you know what that is? That's psycho. We're saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, God, no matter what you have told me about what you require of me. I'm going to behave the way that I want to behave, and then I'm going to waltz right into your presence, and I'm going to sing you praise songs, and I'm going to worship you. And God's like, what are you talking about? I've been very clear about what I need and what I want. Now, some of you are like, wait a second. So are you saying, Patrick, we've got to keep all those requirements in Leviticus? Hang on, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But I just want us to understand what we're saying. We're forcing a relationship on God on our own terms. And that's just, that's, it's crazy behavior. And we act like it's weird that God would have expectations for us and what we do and what we, how we live and the choices we make and the words we say. It, we're acting like that's weird. But we're the ones who are weird because God says, these are the terms. These are the conditions. This is what I want from you. In our Leviticus story, you, you've read, if you've read through the first 10 chapters or so, which is about where we are, maybe 13 chapters, God lays down these holiness expectations. He's got these recipes for sacrifices. And then as he gives everybody these explanations, God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's gather everybody in camp. 
Let's bring everybody out, and then we're going to go through some of these sacrifices. We're going to make sure that Aaron, the high priest, is, is doing good, and his sons are going to help us out, and Moses, we're going to ordain them. We're going to make them holy. This is, this is going to be the first time we're breaking in the new tabernacle here. This is, this is the first thing. So they, they carefully follow the specifications in, in, in uh, Leviticus 1 through 7. I was thinking about this because I was like, man, that is so tedious. But I was thinking, I was telling my small group that when I uh, cook dinner for Liam, when I cook like frozen pizza or macaroni and cheese, and my small group paused and they said, that's not really cooking. And I'm like, well, okay, that's as good as I do. But when I make macaroni and cheese or a frozen pizza for Liam uh, or anybody, I guess I could make it for anybody. Um, but I, I always like, you know, unpackage the thing and I throw away the box immediately. I know how to make mac and cheese. And I begin the process, and then I forget, like, oh, man, how much butter is it? Then I got to open up the trash again, and like, okay, yeah, that, okay, great, I got it now. Oh, shoot, how much milk is it? Okay, I got that now. Or how high is the temperature supposed to be? I forget the instructions all the time. So it actually makes sense to me that God would just be brutally detailed, because I'm sure Moses and the high priest were like, okay, we're ready to, to, to kill the lamb. Now, what do we do with the blood? Oh, hang on, let's just make sure. Okay, yeah, okay, now we got it. It was probably important for them to know exactly what God was expecting from them. So you got this, they're following the recipe for the offering. They kill the ram, check. They splash bloods on the side of the altar, check. They burn the fat, check. Leviticus 9.22. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. This is Moses. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle they just built. It's brand new. It's got that new tabernacle smell. They've just started using it. It says, when they came out, they blessed the people. This is a huge crowd of people. It could be, some, some, some scholars say there, there could be millions of people. I don't know if it's that many, but there could be. It's a huge crowd of people. And it says, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared. The word glory literally means weight, by the way. The weight of the Lord, the specialness, the sanctity, the importance of the Lord appeared to all the people. It says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord, where he was in the tabernacle, and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And it says, and when all the people saw it, this is good, when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. In the presence of God, it must have been thrilling and terrifying. Years ago, uh, we were up at our camp that we go to up near Cook, Minnesota, and it's two weeks long, and there was a period of about four days where it just stormed for day after day straight. And the electricity actually went out, and it just, it just kept getting worse. Like, it was dark, like, even in the middle of the day. It was just that, that gloomy, scary, like, oh, we're tornado kind of dark. And there was one time, in fact, some of you may have been here. I don't know. You guys may have been there, uh, where power's out, and we gather all the campers into the dining hall, and because we just we need everybody in a safe place. This was the newest building, probably the least likely to, I don't know, fall down in gusts of wind. So everybody's in there. We're hanging out in there, and it just gets really dark. You know what I mean? It's like it's probably two o'clock in the afternoon, and you're just like, ooh, this is this is bad news. We're trying to watch the 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 radar on our cell phones, but we just got barely any cell signal. If you've ever been up there, you know what it's like. We're just totally in the dark. Don't know what's going on, but it's like bad, and we got everybody together to kind of hunker down in case things get real ugly. So everybody's in this dining hall. They're playing games, playing cards, whatever. And um, across the windows, outside the windows, a trash can gets blown by. The wind really picks up. 
So the guy who was directing camp at the time, a guy named Ryan uh, Dickinson, he's like, well, I better get that trash can before it's in Canada. So he puts on his rain jacket and he rushes outside, grab this thing that's bumped against the side of something. And he grabs the trash can and he turns to come back inside. And as he does, the closest I have ever been to lightning strikes. There was a tree nearby him. Lightning hits the tree. You know how when you were a kid, you used to count one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. How far away is there was no one thousands. It was just like light, boom, you know, and everybody's watching and we're like, "Uh oh, Ryan is literally toast. Who's going to go out and get him and risk, you know, and it didn't hit him. It hit right next to him and he comes running back inside. He comes into the lodge. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where you're like adrenaline's going. You thought you were going to die. You're not dead. You don't know how to process all those emotions. And he just kind of closes the door. Everybody's watching him. He closes the door and he just looks at everybody and everybody starts laughing. You, you know what I mean? It's just you have all those, all that adrenaline. You're like, I'm glad he's okay. I'm glad he's alive. I don't know what to do with these emotions. Everything's okay. If you've ever been in like a, a, a almost car accident, you felt like that. You're like, okay, I'm alive. I'm going to go hug my family. You know, it's just, you just don't know what to do with all those feelings. And I think that's what is being described in this passage. They shouted for joy and they fell face down. The presence of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, the sanctity of God is in their midst. And the good news is, is everyone in Leviticus lives happily ever after. They always do the right thing because they have seen the very presence of God. They no longer disbelieve. They no longer disobey. They do exactly what God has required of them. And it's wonderful. And everybody lives in an eternal utopia. The very next verse, the very next verse, and this is a repeated pattern in the Bible. If you've been paying attention, you've noticed every time God shows up in a mighty way, humans mess up in a mighty way. You have God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, I'm with you. I'm present with you. All you have to do is not eat the fruit of this tree. <laughs> Let's do that tree. Let's eat that tree for lunch or the fruit of that tree for lunch. You have it in the ark with, with Noah. God's like, all right, Noah, you're my guy. I have got to start this whole thing over with you because everybody else is terrible. So clear the world, erase, control, alt, delete. They land on Mount Ararat. Moses plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and then there's just this dark, dark story uh, where his son does something awful. It's actually talked about not to do in Leviticus. It happened at Sinai. Hey, guys. Do not make idols. That's kind of my number one rule. Do not do it. What's the first thing they do? Make a golden calf. Hey, new tabernacle. Let's get this thing rolling. Let's do it right. I've given you all the instructions. I've been very clear about what I need. And the very next verse after God shows up, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons. We pronounce it Nadab and Abihu. It's not the actual pronunciation, pronunciation but I, I did, I, it sounds weird to say it any other way. They took their censers. These are kind of like weird lamp incense burner things. And they put fire in them and they added incense. But then they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And it says contrary to his command. Contrary to his command. God shows up dramatically. People mess up dramatically. The word contrary is really important. They weren't doing it on accident. In fact, in a few verses, um, Moses says, okay, uh, let's uh, tell Aaron and his sons not to do any drinking before they serve in the tabernacle. 
So we don't know if that was what happened, but that became a rule right after this happened. You know, you've done that as parents where you didn't think you had to make a rule like that, and then your kids do this thing, and you're like, well, I guess that's a rule now. No licking the cat. That's a rule because I didn't expect you to do that. So Nadab and Abihu, they made this TikTok dance video at Auschwitz in front of the family of grieving Holocaust survivors. They do this thing that God said, do not do that. And they're like, we're going to do that. We're going to see what happens, testing the boundaries. Um, my uncle, who uh, is also named Patrick Doherty, by the way, there's lots of us. Uh, he used to be a driving instructor. And I don't know what the word is. What's the, the person that actually tests? They get in the car with a 16-year-old and they drive around with them. And, you know, what, what is that? Who's that? Is it just a driving instructor? Anyway, he, he used to do that, whatever it was. And he, I remember him telling one time, and I'm not sure if I'm getting this exactly right, but I remember him saying sometimes he would sit, you know, you slide in that passenger seat, and he would look over at the, the kid, and he would immediately fail them. And you're like, but he didn't have a chance. The kid never got a chance to prove himself. And here was, was his, his rationale. He would say, I mean, when those, I hadn't thought about this, but when those people are getting in those cars with brand new drivers... They're taking their life in their hands. And if they get the sense, and I don't know if this is true for all of them. This is certainly true for my uncle. He doesn't do it anymore, so you don't have to worry about the unfairness of it. But if they get the sense that this person is not serious, has not put in the work, is not going to take this moment with the weight and gravity, he doesn't want to drive anywhere with them. You're not serious enough about this yet. You go back, get more serious about it, and then come back when you're ready. I, can, I totally get that. I totally get that. And some of you are like, well, I'm going to report him. I know his name, so I'm going to call. <laughs> Feel free. I don't care. I mean, and you can imagine. You would do it, too. If you slid in the seat and there's this, I don't know, punk kid who's giving you attitude and, you know, won't look you in the eye, you'd be like, you're not ready. X. Why? Because driving is a dangerous privilege. It's a dangerous privilege. You could seriously hurt yourself and others. Access to God is a dangerous privilege. It's a wonderful and dangerous privilege. Leviticus 10.3, fire comes out from the tabernacle and ends the lives of Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10.3, Moses then said to Aaron, their father, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. You can only get so close to the sun without getting burned. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. All right. Okay, Patrick. Great. So what? <laughs> so what? That's all interesting, but we don't have a tabernacle. We don't live in the Hebrew Bible days. We don't live at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness with millions of other Hebrew people. So what? We're not offering sacrifices. What did Jesus fulfilled the law. You talked about that before, didn't you? Well, first of all, I think all this brings the New Testament to life. For example, Romans 12, 1, when he writes, when Paul writes, hey, Paul's steeped in this, these stories. And when he writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your entire bodies like those rams and those sheep and those pigeons. Offer your whole body as a living sacrifice, a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. This is your true and proper worship. We, we think worship is right before the sermon when we're singing songs. And he's like, no, no, no. It's to offer the entirety of your lives. It gives nuance and depth to that. But it also helps us understand our relationship with God. And we're going to wrap up with just two short verses. Hebrews 10, 14. This is the one we read earlier. Miguel read for us. For by one sacrifice, one, not daily sacrifices of rams and sheeps and goats, 
uh, sheep and goats. For by one sacrifice of Christ, he has made perfect forever. You. You have been made perfect forever. And you're like, mm, I got some skeletons in my closet. You have been made perfect forever. Well, yeah, actually, just this morning, I had some thoughts that weren't pure. You have been made perfect forever by the sacrifice of Christ. But look at what he goes on to say. He is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Yes, you have some work to do. You've been made perfect forever, and you're being made holy, acceptable to God. And then Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, but among you, listen to this, among you, this is because you have been made holy, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. These are improper for people who have already been made holy. It's so valuable to know that we can waltz into the presence of God but it would be utterly ridiculous for us to behave in ways that God says, that's contrary to who I am, that's contrary to my character, that's contrary to what I want for you and the people around you. We're going to sing a song in closing called Behold Our God, and it's a song that acknowledges the might and the awe of God, and I, I just, I think it's got to start there. I think the redemption of our character has to start with the holiness of God. It can't start with our holiness because we're not. It has to start with who we believe God to be, what, he, what we believe God has done, and then we begin to say, you know what, these, these ways of being and thinking and living and behaving, no more. Let's stand this together and sing.